you're standing here with us, you can open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, if you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And whenever you came in, you should have found a card, something like this, somewhere around where you are seated on your rows. Um, on, on one side of that card is a place for information about you, so we can send you some information about us. The other side of that card is a place for prayer requests. If there are prayer needs in your life that we can pray with you or for you about, it would be our honor to do that. Uh, if you do fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. Uh, we'd be happy to connect with you in that way. Uh, if you're online with us or if you're here in person and want to do it electronically, you can find that same information on the homepage of our website. Fill out that form, hit submit, and that'll shoot us an email with all that same information there as well. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Jonah for the last several weeks, and we come this weekend to chapter 2. Um, where we'll spend the next couple of weeks together uh, as we work our way through this small book tucked away here in the Old Testament. But I'll begin reading for us in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. The text will be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord prayed, or then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's Word. You know, in terms of geography, a summit is the highest point on a surface. It's higher than uh, an elevation than all the other points adjacent to it. And so when you look at a particular mountain range or an area of a mountain range, that summit is the highest elevation above sea level. Uh, compared to all the other points around the apex or zenith of that particular mountain range, the peak that extends beyond all the other ridges and all the other peaks. Uh, If you travel to the eastern coast of the United States, you'll find the Appalachian Mountains. And the highest point in the Appalachian Mountains is called Mount Mitchell. And it measures in at 6,684 feet above sea level. Rather modest little hill. The highest summit in the state of Texas is Guadalupe Peak out in far west Texas, measuring in at 8,751 feet above sea level. You didn't know that the Guadalupe Peak was taller than the highest Appalachian mountain. The highest summit in the Rocky Mountains is Mount Elbert. There's a number of 14ers out there in Colorado, but this one measures in at 14,440 feet above sea level. If you go into Western Europe, into the Alps, Mount Blanc is the highest summit there, measuring in at 15,777 feet above sea level. And if you travel into Asia, 
the highest summit there in the, across the globe is in, located in the Himalayas, which is Mount Everest, measuring in an astounding 29,032 feet above sea level. That's five and a half miles above sea level. And just shy, Matt could probably tell us more specifically, of the cruising altitude of most commercial airliners. Right? So they're barely above where Mount Everest ascends. So you may be asking, well, what's the point of this, other than a geography lesson you didn't ask for or expect on a Sunday morning in a sermon? Right? Listen, the summit of a mountain range is its most impressive point, its most impressive feature. Imagine for a moment that you were to spend all of your time in the foothills, exploring the foothills of a particular mountain range, thinking that you had seen the mountains. And that would be very easy for somebody like me to do. Okay? I grew up 30 minutes from the Gulf of Mexico at sea level. Some would say below sea level because we raise alligators in our backyards. That's what all you people think, right? Because you watched Waterboy at some point in your past, right? I grew up in the state of Louisiana, and the highest point in the state of Louisiana is Driscoll Mountain. And that word mountain is a stretch, okay? It measures in at a whopping 535 feet above sea level. See, you can explore all the foothills and miss the beauty, the majesty, and glory of the summit. And when you come to the Bible, church, you can spend all your time exploring the characters of the Bible and trying to learn from their examples. You can spend all your time exploring principles in the Bible for better finances, for better marriages, for better parenting, or better relationships in general. You can spend all your time exploring the meaning of one word or two words or one verse or two verses or debating how all of the things that we see right now unfolding are going to result in the end of the age. Okay? We can debate all those things all day long. Now, are all those things a part of this great mountain range that we find in this book? Yes. But are they the summit? They are not. They are not the peak. If they are not the peak, then what is? Listen, church, in verse 9, in the climax of Jonah's prayer, in the belly of this great fish, we find what I believe to be the summit of the book of Jonah. And some preachers, much older and wiser than I, who came many years before me, have said potentially the summit of the entire Bible itself. When Jonah comes to this conclusion after all of this prayer to make a declaration, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now in the book of Jonah, there are, depending upon how you divide it out, if you're looking at English translations or the original Hebrew, there's about 24 verses prior to Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 and about 22 verses subsequent to Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, which means Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 sits almost dead center in the book. And he, Jonah makes that declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the summit, it's the peak, it's the high point of the story of Jonah and perhaps of the whole Bible itself. And over the next couple of weeks, listen church, what we want to do is we want to start at the conclusion of Jonah's prayer and work backwards through. Work backwards through Jonah chapter 2 to see what leads Jonah to this conclusion whenever he makes this declaration that salvation belongs to the Lord. And what we want to do in our exploration of that is see what that means for you and I as well. 
because we're going to see three things over the next course of the next, these next three weeks from Jonah chapter 2. The sovereignty of God, the grace of God, and the exclusivity of God. And we want to start this morning by recognizing God's sovereignty. And if I had to give a title to this message, that would be it. Recognizing God's sovereignty. Now, in case you missed the first few weeks of this series, or if you're unfamiliar with Jonah's story, let me catch you up to where we are. Right, so in Jonah chapter 1, God comes to Jonah and he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's enemies. The Assyrians were the greatest global power of Jonah's day in the ancient Near East, and they were known for their brutality. So they're the enemies of all the other nations. They're conquering other nations, uh, uh, oppressing other nations, leading other nations away into captivity and slavery. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh, but Jonah decides he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to see God be gracious to his enemies. And so he goes down to a port city named Joppa. He gets on a boat and he sails to Tarshish. Now, most scholars believe Tarshish is in the tip of modern-day Spain. So Jonah heads up exactly the opposite direction. God is sending Jonah east. Jonah heads west. And he heads west as far as his mind can possibly imagine him going to the ends of the earth to escape where God is sending him. But God will not let Jonah rest. Because God in verse 4 of chapter 1, He hurls a storm onto the sea as Jonah is on the boat with the sailors and the captain. And the ship threatens to break up. The sailors don't know why this is happening. They recognize this is not a normal storm, and so they cast lots to determine on whose account this has come upon them, and the lot falls on Jonah. So it's Jonah's responsibility. Jonah is the one who has brought this upon them as he's fled from the presence of God and run away from God's call on his life. And so they, just, they, they try to determine what should be done. And so they try to row really, really hard to get back to shore, but they can't. And Jonah finally says, listen, the only way to calm the storm is to pick me up and throw me overboard. Cast me into the sea. So the sailors finally do. And whenever they do, the sea calms down, the winds become still, and the sailors are in such awe of what has taken place that they fall to their knees on the deck. They make vows to God. They make sacrifices on the boat. And they commit themselves to this God of the heavens, of the, who rules the sea and the dry land. They commit themselves to Jonah's God, the one from whose presence he is fleeing. But God's still not done with Jonah because God appoints a great fish to come and swallow him. And in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights is where we find Jonah now. And what Jonah does is the only thing he knows to do in that moment is to pray. He begins to cry out to God. But look at the language that Jonah uses in verse 3. When we talk about recognizing God's sovereignty, right? The word sovereign basically means power, authority, rule, right? When we talk about recognizing God's sovereignty, I want you to notice this from the text. In verse 3, the language that Jonah uses whenever he prays, he says this, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, God, all your billows, God, passed over me. Now, if you're reading this story, you may say, wait a minute, right? 
What's, what, what in the world is going on? I thought the sailors are the one who threw Jonah into the sea. They hurled him overboard. And yet here in chapter 2, when Jonah prays, he says, you cast me into the deep. It was your waves that collapsed over my head. It was your billows that passed over my body. What's going on with that? Listen, church, it's the same thing that's going on in the book of Genesis when you find another man by the name of Joseph. And Joseph is hated by his brothers. And so he is, he's, he's sold into Egypt to a band of traveling gypsies to take him down into Egypt where he is ultimately comes to be a servant in the house of a guy by the name of Potiphar. And he serves in Potiphar's house until Potiphar's wife makes un, unsolicited advances towards Joseph. And then when Joseph spurns her advances, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of making advances towards her. And so Joseph is thrown into prison. And as he's in prison, he meets a couple of individuals who are also imprisoned, and they have some dreams that Joseph is able to interpret. So Joseph interprets their dreams, and they make a promise to Joseph that whenever they get out of prison, that they're going to remember Joseph, tell Pharaoh about Joseph, and that Joseph would be released, but they have a very bad short-term memory. So whenever they get out, they forget to tell Pharaoh about Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream about these skinny cows eating these fat cows and this, this what's going on. No one in the land can interpret this. And so these people who knew Pharaoh, worked in Pharaoh's household, said, hey, we remember this guy in prison. Let's, so, let's see if he can interpret the dream. And so Joseph interprets the dream, says there's a famine coming. We need to make preparations so that our people are not obliterated. And so they begin to make preparations. And eventually, uh, uh, Pharaoh releases Joseph from prison. And Joseph rises to like vice president in all of the land of Egypt. Right? He's the guy who's second in command at the right hand of Pharaoh. And this famine had not only affected Egypt, but it also spread in the rest of the ancient Near East and it affected Israel, the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. And before you know it, not long before Joseph's brothers come knocking on the door of Pharaoh saying, we need help. And at first, Joseph's brothers don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph knows exactly who's coming to look for help. And at the point at which Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, listen to what he says. In Genesis 45, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph says, you selling me here was God sending me here to make preparations for this coming famine. It's the same thing, church, that's happening when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he begins to preach. See, the Holy Spirit had fallen and people began speaking in languages that were not their native tongues. And people were hearing the good news of Jesus in languages that, that the people who were speaking had not been trained in. 
And this diverse crowd that's there, some of them begin, were hearing the message and responding to it. Others were mocking them, saying, listen, these guys have been hitting the sauce a little too early and a little too hard. They are plastered. But Peter stands up and he says, what you see happening among you is exactly what Joel prophesied about in Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is falling right now. On the day of Pentecost. And then he goes on to speak to this diverse crowd. And he says this to all those who are gathered there in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. When Jonah prays in Jonah chapter 2, for you cast me into the deep, all your waves and your billows passed over me. He is in the vein of the biblical authors, like in the book of Genesis, where Joseph says, you selling me was God sending me. And when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the ordained will of God, but you put him to death by the hands of lawless men. Because you see, church, in the Bible, unlike us, the Bible is not willing to separate God's activity and our activity as if they were divorced from one another. As if they were not related to one another. See, as a response to Jonah's sin, God hurls the storm. God is behind these natural forces that overtake the ship on the Mediterranean Sea. And God casts the prophet into the waters of his judgment. God is behind that human action, carrying out his plans, carrying out his purposes. That's why in chapter 1 we read, they hurled him, but in chapter 2, Jonah prays, you cast me. God was at work behind the muscles of the men who threw Jonah into the depths of the ocean. And listen, church, he is at work behind the heights of our joy, the depths of our sorrows. God is carrying out his purposes and plans, and he's utilizing and using whatever means he deems necessary to accomplish his will. Now, that, that's a hard truth. For us to swallow in our day. Because many of us immediately when we hear something about God's sovereignty. And being behind human actions. We ask this question. But what about the dark and difficult things that have happened to us in our lives? What about those moments of our deepest sorrows? Those moments of our deepest distress? And what I would say in response to that, and I believe the Bible would say in response to that, just look at the book of Job. There is nothing that comes to us that has not either come from or through God. Either from or through God. Listen, a couple of years ago, I was in a London airport traveling to South Africa when I got a phone call. I got a phone call from my wife. 
And a friend of mine had been struggling with some health issues, did not know what was going on. And as I was, I remember exactly, some of you have had those phone calls. You know exactly where you were whenever you said hello. I was on an escalator in Heathrow Airport in London, riding to make a connecting flight whenever I answered the phone and my wife said, he has cancer. I remember exactly where I was. And I remember walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Trying to serve his family in the midst of COVID, trying to protect his immune system, like wearing gloves and masks to drive him to chemotherapy appointments to give his wife some respite. And I can remember exactly where I was nine months later on a run in Rockwall on a Friday morning. I know ex- I, could, I could go to the house that I was in front of when I got the next phone call and she said, he's gone. He's gone. Will you do his funeral? And of course, I said, I would be honored to officiate his funeral. So I met with her. I began to meet with members of the family. This has been a man that I had walked with for the last 15 years of my life. He was one of those individuals that I had iron sharpening iron type of relationship with. He loved his family. He loved his kids. He loved his Lord and he loved his church. And so you look at that situation you're like, why in the world would God remove a man like that at a time like this? And I can remember the day of his memorial service, standing on the platform of his church and listening to person after person talk about the kind of man that he was. And I remember hearing one individual, one of his family members, who said something in the eulogy. He said, I sat down with my, this, this, this family member of his, and he said, I had a conversation with him several days before he died, and we both agreed that this was not the Lord's will. This was not what the Lord wanted. Now listen, this may be what that family member of his wanted to believe, but I knew my friend well enough to know that he knew There was nothing that came to him that did not come either from or through God. He knew that truth. It was deeply embedded in his soul. In fact, his wife told me later that she was not all too happy about some of the things that were said from that platform by certain individuals. So you wonder, what in the world, why would God remove a man like that at a time like this? And listen, church, I don't have all the answers for all the difficult and dark things that have happened in your past. But what I can say with unequivocal confidence is this, is that as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, that all things work together for good. And you may ask, well, what good comes out of removing a man in his early 40s, leaving a widow in her late 30s with two grade school age children? I'll tell you one good that came out of that. The gospel was preached at that memorial service to many people who did not know Christ. I'll tell you another good that's come out of that since then. is to watch the deepening of faith in the lives of his wife 
and of his children. Listen, my son, who's almost 15, and her son, who is in third grade, right now have more in common than other kids his age. Whenever we get together as families, and there's other kids his age there, he gravitates toward my son. You know why? Because he's matured in the last 18 months. It's been like, it's been, it's like fast-forwarded, Right? like skipping ahead in the DVR of life, like he's grown up and come to trust God in deeper ways than he ever would have before. She has seen God's faithfulness carry her through and carry her kids through in ways that she never could have imagined before. There is an intimacy now that she has with God that she did not know before. And listen, church, if you could go back and delete the dark and difficult things that have happened in your past, let me ask you a question. Would you know Him the way that you know Him today? Would you trust Him the way that you trust Him today? The answer is no. It's no. I can't tell you all the reasons for why God does what He does but I can tell you the Bible will not let us pull apart our actions from God's actions. That if we are to come to the same conclusion Jonah does, that salvation belongs to the Lord, then we must come to recognize the sovereignty of God. That sometimes... God hurls storms and casts us in to deep, deep waters to show us that He is able to deliver us from them. It's important that we recognize God's sovereignty for at least this reason. Because faith in the sovereign God, church, it fuels our hope. It fuels our hope. If you think of God's sovereignty... His rule over all that is, that has been and will be. If you think of God's sovereignty as the soil in which your life grows. Listen, hope can grow in that soil of life because if you believe that salvation belongs to the Lord because you recognize that every distress that God delivers us over to what God had done with Jonah. He had delivered him over to the storm, delivered him over to the waters and the waves and the depths. That every distress He delivers us over to, He is able to deliver us from. Every single one of them. And salvation belongs to the one who can deliver us from every distress. Listen, in verse 1, Jonah says, He called out to the Lord in his distress. Out of the belly of what he says is Sheol. Now, Sheol in the Old Testament wasn't the same conception as hell. Okay? It was the place of the dead. It's where you went when you died. Everyone went to Sheol. Everyone descended down to the place of the dead. And so when Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of the, from the belly of Sheol, what is he saying? Jonah was saying, I was as good as dead. I was hopeless. I was helpless. And I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And Jonah says, God heard my cry and he answered me. Now that word distress in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in Jonah chapter 2 it literally meant this. In the Hebrew, it meant to t- a tightness. 
And figuratively, it came to be used for adversity or affliction or anguish or distress or tribulation or trouble. But it meant to be in a tight spot. You ever been in a tight spot before? You ever been in a place of, of, of adversity or affliction or anguish or distress? Listen, I know some of your stories. I know you have. And Jonah's distress in this passage, church, it was twofold. First of all, Jonah was in a tight spot physically. Right? A real tight spot. As Jonah says in verses 5 to 7, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my, about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In other words, Jonah says, it's like I was imprisoned behind these, these, these bars and these doors that held me down for good. But Jonah was also in a tight spot spiritually. In verse 4, after recounting his physical distress, Jonah recounts his spiritual anguish and he says this, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah says, I'm sinking. Right? I can't doggy paddle my way back up to the surface to grab a breath of air. He says, I'm going down to the roots, the base of the mountains, right, where the weeds were wrapped around my head Physically, I was experiencing God's judgment. Spiritually, I was cast out of God's sight. And yet, now you got to remember, Jonah's praying this from where? From the shore whenever he spit back up? He's praying this from where? From the belly of the fish. At the bottom of the ocean. And Jonah is saying these words. Yet... You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Listen, if I were in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the Mediterranean Ocean, I would probably be thinking about whether or not I would see my kids again, whether or not I would see my wife again, not whether or not I would see God's temple again. Why does Jonah reference the temple there? Here's why. Because the temple was the place of God's abiding presence among his people in the Old Testament. And Jonah's saying this. I am confident. He's praying with such confidence. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, physically rescuing me, resurrecting me out of the belly of this fish. And yet I will behold your presence once again in the place where it dwells among your people. I will see the temple again. I will have you in my sight once again, God. I will be once again in your presence. So physically, Jonah's confident of this deliverance. Spiritually, Jonah's confident of this deliverance because the God who had delivered him over to this distress is the same God that he knows is sovereign and is able, powerful to deliver him from this distress. That's what gives Jonah this great hope with which he prays. Hugh Martin, a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, said it this way. He said, had his hope rested on sense, on reason, on nature, on time. It must have failed and sunk forever. But he did not rest on nature. He did not draw upon the region of his senses. He did not lean on the power of reason. He believed. 
He did not perceive. He did not argue. He believed. He believed in hope and so strongly that he believed in hope that his faith destroyed the hope destroying power of sense. You ever been in a situation before where all of your senses are saying there is no hope? And Martin says, listen, he believed so deeply that God was able to, the one who handed him over to the distress was able to deliver him from the distress that that faith destroyed the hope-destroying power of his senses, of his reason, of nature, of knowing he's in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And yet he cries out, believing God would deliver He says, for sense would have destroyed his hope, but this hope-destroying power of sense, his faith destroyed. He goes on to say, circumstances, nature, creation, sight, sense, all of these plead for the giving up of all hope, and their pleas are strong. Their statements in themselves are true, but over against all these you place in solitary, unapproachable, surpassing majesty, You place God above circumstance. You place God above senses. You place God above nature. You place God above creation. God above your sight and what you can see. And in faith, believe that whatever, listen church, in the, in the, in the story of Jonah, whatever you have sinned your way into, God is able to save you out of. That whatever He's delivered you over to, He's able to deliver you from. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is good news. Because if salvation belonged to me, if salvation belonged to you, if salvation belonged to us, with our limited power, with our limited resources. Listen, I remember the children's song, My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. But if salvation belonged to me, listen, I would be hopeless and helpless because I am not so big I am not so strong and I'm not so mighty and there is countless numbers of things that I cannot do for you. And you cannot do for me. But God can. Listen, church, if salvation belongs to the Lord, then there is nothing that He cannot deliver you from. No matter what you feel you have sinned your way into, He is able to save you out of. And we put this hope into action. Right? We recognize God's sovereignty. That He's able, powerful. His mighty outstretched hand is able to deliver from anything. And that gives us great hope. And when we put that hope into action, here's what we do. We call out to the Lord. We call out to the Lord. When Jonah finds himself in the belly of the fish, cut off from the presence of God, and hemmed in physically, feeling his life wasting away in a place of utter despair, he does the one thing he knows to do, and that is pray. 
See, in verse five, or I'm sorry, in verse one, we're told that from the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed to his God. His God. He calls on his God in this moment of despair. And I have a question for you this morning, church. Will you call out to the Lord in your own moments of distress? For some of us, this looks like calling out to the Lord for salvation. Listen, I, I, it's, it's no secret to many of you that I have a very eclectic taste in music. Okay, and so I listen to everything from modern country to um, redeemed hip-hop. Okay, uh, and so uh, in, in one uh, believing hip-hop artist song, he makes a statement. He says, I didn't go to church because I was scared. I didn't go to church because I was lonely. So I went to church when I heard that Jesus had a problem with my sin and he could save me. For some of us, calling out to the Lord, asking God to save us from his own just judgment. That's where Jonah finds himself. He finds himself under God's just judgment because he had run away from the Lord's presence. He had fled from God's call. So God sends a storm, God hurls him into the sea, and Jonah cries out to be delivered. And I wonder if that's you this morning. Have you been running from the Lord all of your life? Listen, whether you are 60 or whether you are 16, have you been running from the Lord as long as you can remember hearing His voice calling you? As long as you can remember His voice Beckoning you, drawing you. Have you been running from his presence? Casting off his, 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 the restraints and the bonds and cords of his love as he seeks to pursue you? Have you weathered storm after storm after storm that he has hurled upon the sea of your life with all while refusing to bend your knee and cry out for salvation? For some of us, calling out to the Lord this morning looks like calling out for God to save us. For others of us, it might look like God, calling out to God for deliverance in the midst of all sorts of types of distress that we may find ourselves in. Listen, the one thing that Jonah does not do when he finds himself in the belly of the fish, he's not like, you know, punching the esophagus, right? Boxing with the vocal cords, Right? He's not trying to work his way out of the situation. He knows the only hope for him is God. So where do you find yourself this morning, church, where you've come to the end of all of your resources and you need God to deliver, you need God to work, you need God to act? For some of us, it may be calling out to the Lord for sanctification. Having this hope that God is able to, God is able to renew and restore whatever sin has eroded in your life. And for some of us, that looks like areas of our life in which we have struggled to walk in obedience and faith from the time that we placed our confidence in Jesus. If that's you, I want you to know that God is able to sanctify to the uttermost and deliver you from whatever sin that so easily entangles you. For some of us, it might be calling out to the Lord for awakening. Maybe we sense an apathy in our own hearts. 
that we know we are not capable of relighting the fire. And so we ask God, God, would you awaken my heart? Would you burn away the apathy and give me a passion for you that I have not known or have not known in a long time? For some of us, it may be calling out to the Lord on behalf of those that we know who are in the same boat, no pun intended, as Jonah. Calling out to the Lord on behalf of the lost. See, if God is sovereign over salvation, church, here's one thing you need to remember and lock this away somewhere deep, deep in your hearts and minds. That if God is sovereign over salvation, salvation belongs to Him. He's able to deliver from any distress. He's able to save us out of whatever we have sent ourselves into. And that means that there is no longer any hopeless cases or causes in our lives. That means we don't write people off and say, they're a hopeless cause. That means your neighbor is not a hopeless cause. Whether you've invited them to church 17 times in the last 17 days, right? And they have said no every single time. They're not a hopeless cause. That means that your children who have wandered from the Lord are not a hopeless case. Despite your tears and pleadings and prayers, they are not hopeless. That means your parents, whom you have prayed for for years, are not beyond the outstretched arm of God to deliver. That means that co-worker that you've shared the gospel with on multiple occasions, and they've always been stumped by objections to the faith. It means that they're not a hopeless cause. Share again. Call out to the Lord on their behalf. Don't stop pleading with God to be the God who would show Himself to be mighty and strong the God who would show Himself to be the one for whom nothing is impossible. For God to show Himself to be the one for whom nothing is beyond His reach. But how can you be sure He's going to hear you? Listen, church, there's only one way you can be sure He's going to hear you. And that's this. You see, there was another man. Another man in the book who was hurled into the, a, a greater storm than what Jonah faced. He was hurled into the storm of God's judgment, not against his sin, but against the sins of the world. And as that storm fell upon him at the cross, he was the one who could truly look up and say, all your waves and your billows have passed over me, you cast me into the deep. He was delivered up according to the definite knowledge, foreknowledge, and ordination, and plan and will of God. You see, God delivered Jesus over to death, but you know what else He did? He delivered Jesus 
through and from death as he raised him from the grave and seated at the right hand of God. And it's because of him that we're able to go into the presence of God and call out knowing that God will hear our prayers. That's the only confidence I have before him in prayer. And that's the only confidence you have before him in prayer as well. Our confidence before God in prayer is not how good we did last week. How successful we were this morning in our Christian walk. Our confidence before the Lord in prayer hinges squarely and solely upon the work of Christ. Who was delivered up for our transgressions. For our sins, not his own. But the distress that God delivered him over to, he delivered him from. So call out to the Lord, church. And believe that he will answer. Jonah gets to Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 and he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the first step that he takes to get there is in verses 1 to 3 when he says, You cast me into the deep so only you can deliver me from it. Recognize his sovereignty, church. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank you for your power and might at work in our lives. We thank you for the fact that you are great and strong and mighty and there is nothing that you cannot do even as Jesus himself said there is nothing that is impossible for God may we remember that truth Father help us to trace the hand of your sovereignty through our lives that you have been governing and ruling our lives. There is nothing in our past that has caught you by surprise. There is nothing in our past for which you did not have a plan. And there is nothing from our past from which you are not able to save fully. May you fuel our hope in our present situations with that truth. And may we, every day, fall on our knees and call out to you. But particularly this day, Father, if there are those this morning who find themselves in a place of distress, not knowing how to move forward, feeling like the waves are crashing over them, the weight of their sin is resting on them. And they've come to a place of conviction, acknowledging that they, their sin is what has put them in the place that they are, God. Would you help them to know that they're able to call out to you? And that only the one against whom they have sinned is able to deliver them from the consequences of it. Father, may we as a church call out to you on behalf of those in our lives who are lost, who are far from you, 
who have run away from your presence in their lives, just like Jonah. And God, may you hear and answer our prayers. May you be gracious to save. Whether they be our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers, our spouses. our co-workers, our neighbors, lifelong friends. Father, this morning as we sing about You who are indeed our living hope, may You fill our hearts with the expectation that You're able to do more abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And so, Father, as we call out to You, may You give us hope and expectation to believe that You will hear our cries, not because of us, but because of Christ. As we bring our petitions, our prayers to You in His name, we ask it for His glory.